Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Daily Friend Show. I'm your host, Nicholas Lorimer, joined today by Mr. Terence Corrigan. Terence, how are you doing, sir? I'm good, Nicholas, and yourself? I'm pretty good, pretty good, as good as one can be for Monday. And I am also joined today by Dr. John Idris. John, how are you doing? All good. Hi, Nicholas. Hello, listeners. Hi, Terence. Uh, John, you just sound like you've switched to the wrong mic there because you've gotten very far away in echoing. So, is that uh, better? That is That's much better. better. Okay. Um, right. So let's get stuck into it, uh, and I think we should talk about what, for me, is sends an absolute shiver down my spine, and this is ESCOM's load limiting project. So, when you have a shortage of electricity, there's lots of different ways that the system can try and uh, reduce the amount of power everyone is using. You know, people can install power saving stuff. Um, you can have load shedding, which is what we currently have, right? Where you switch off the power for a certain amount of hours for certain areas. You get zero power for some hours of the day, but then you get full power for other hours of the day. But ESCOM is pretty interested in reducing the impact of load shedding for obvious reasons. And so they are talking about a new project called load limiting. So the idea of this is that the amount of power sent to each individual customer is less, um, especially during periods of load shedding. So uh, to research the feasibility of this project, ESCOM has started it here in Johannesburg in four ways, which um, interestingly enough is served this part of four ways is served by ESCOM, not by City Power, which is the Joburg utility, which is a sort of odd curiosity. But anyway, um, and the idea of this thing is so they, 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 that you normally get 60 to 80 amps, and they're going to reduce it to 10 amps. And the idea is that you'll be able to still have lights and some basic appliances on, but things like kettles and pool pumps and anything that takes a fair amount of power won't work. So that's the idea anyway. So... The pilot project has begun and they've tried it out. And according to a local DA ward councillor, David Foley, uh, there were quite a few problems. Um, a lot of residents had intermittent power supply with lights flickering off on, uh, on and off every few seconds. Uh, other people lost power. Uh, he said, people's lights would go on and off causing problems. On Thursday, I went to help some of the elderly and turned on their electricity boxes outside their homes. It seems the problem is getting resolved by ESCOM. Um, a resident who followed the rules turned. She said she turned off her her, fri uh, her you know uh, pool pump and her geezer and all the things that ESCOM told them to do. Said without fail, when load shedding began, our power turned off and on every five seconds for up to ten minutes in a row. This is not limited to the start of the load shedding slot. Our power is then turned off completely until the end of the load shedding sh shedding slot, and sometimes over the scheduled time. Uh, ESCOM said that they are aware of the challenges experienced by customers during load shedding. Uh, the load limiting and the matter is being investigated and they apologize for the inconvenience now the reason this sends a shiver up my spine is because as this little pilot project reveals i suspect if this were rolled out on a large scale it would be utterly disastrous with everything from appliances being destroyed by weird fluctuations in power and voltage uh, to uh, people just losing power anyway to the grid tripping to all sorts of chaos john let me start with you um, what do you make of this proposal? Is this a good idea? Am I right in my skepticism? Well, I think we are clearly in a, in a rationing kind of situation. Um, and some of the comments we're seeing in the chat from, from Lars sort of support that, uh, which is that there's not enough supply to meet demand. 
And it's like when at your house you want to entertain some guests and you get out the tablecloth for the table and you took the wrong one out, which is too small for the table. And you try tugging it the one way to make it cover the table. You try tugging it the other way to cover the table. But still, it's not going to cover the table. And it's the same with our electricity. You know, that it just isn't enough to go around at the moment. Um, so we're managing that shortage through rationing. And load shedding is a form of rationing. And this load limiting would be another form of, of rationing, just a different form. And in the abstract, I can see the appeal of it. I can see, you know, why it might be nice. It's sort of like having a small inverter. Uh, in your house instead of you having to supply it so you can keep the lights going and the internet and the TV, um, you know, uh, instead of you having to supply that, ESCOM will do that for you. They'll give you like a little 10 amp inverter effectively and you can keep a few things going even if the big stuff doesn't work. Right, it's definitely um, a more nimble solution. Yes, exactly. And, in theory. Um, so that's actually not a... Sorry, uh, sorry, Nick? In theory, it's a more nimble In theory, exactly, yes. So that was the theory of the matter. Um, and if it worked, it would be quite beautiful. And you'd be sitting in your house and you'd hardly even notice load shedding, except that at certain times, you know, your, your pool pump or your um, heat, electric heater wouldn't work or your visa. Otherwise, you know, you would not notice the impact of load shedding quite as much. But then, of course, there's a gap between reality and theory. Uh, and I think that's what we're seeing here in four ways. Uh, your, your skepticism, I think, was well-founded. I suspect that ESCOM is going to persist in its attempts to make this work, and maybe they will, and maybe they won't, but um, it is a sophisticated solution to a problem, and I'm not sure that we are the kind of country at this stage that does sophisticated solutions, and maybe we just need a simple solution like load shedding. Nick? Or more specifically, that uh, ESCOM is not the kind of company that can manage a sophisticated solution. Had we a private distribution grid or a private electricity provider, I would be more willing to uh, try out something like this. At the very least, you know, if you lost all of your electronic equipment to, uh, to a mistake that the distributor made, you wouldn't have to then tackle the horrors of bureaucracy <laughs> that would no doubt come with trying to engage with ESCOM. Um, Terence, uh, what do you make of this story? Do you agree with John? Uh, this this seems to me a, a kind of typical problem with the way that governance is done in South Africa, which is we kind of we go for the fancy solution, we go for the high tech solution, and it's it's worth noting that, uh, and I think to the great shame of the anti ANC coalition, they also supported this initiative in Johannesburg, um, and the ANC is in favour of it. So at the moment, you know, no, I don't think any of the major political parties are actually against this uh and it seems to me like it's you know really shooting for the moon when we should just focus on getting airborne first what do you make of this yeah um look i'm in two minds on the one hand i do think that uh you know as john says a kind of um a kind of escom provided inverter and uh it's really a case of making lemonade out of out of lemons it's a bad situation you know you uh you try to make you try to make the best of it. Um, I'm a little curious uh, when your uh, when your power is cut to that level. Uh, is that is that just those higher, uh, you know, more consumptive devices don't work, or you're not supposed to use them? Because you know, unless there is something that that, that renders them inoperable, um, you're gonna you, you're invariably gonna have this sort of free rider problem of um, uh, of someone saying, well, you know, the rest of the neighbourhood can switch off. I'm just I'm going full tilt. Um, so I do think I do think the idea is that there's just not enough power for those things to work, and if you turn okay. them on, it might trip your house. 
And I think, Look, sorry, I, I think yeah. I'll return so I can just mention that what they do is that they uh, give you the opportunity to, to switch off your big consumers. Right. And if you don't, you'll see receive some sort of signal like flickering of lights or something, right. which tells you now really go and switch off your geezer. And if you don't, then you just get uh, node shared. It's supposed to be more individualized through the smart right, yeah. that's, that's kind of the idea here. Well, okay. Look, I think I think that's 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 one of the first issues. The 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 smart metering. Not everyone has that, so it has um, it has limits on on how far you can roll it out. Look, I you know I I, I think that that uh, in fairness to Escom, you've this is a pilot project, so um, you know maybe they'll be able to work out these uh, work out these bugs. My concern is that they've sort of half got the bugs worked out, and you know they eager for no one to go into the election, you know, without uh, with, without some some market improvement that they can point to. And so we just, you know, uh, barrel full steam ahead with a system not working properly with the administrative capacity not to make it, uh, uh, not to make it function as it, as it should. And, you know, I, I, I just, uh, I'll leave it to the imagination, you know, how that one works out. Right, so let's talk a little bit about ESCOM more broadly. Um, Things have been going better for ESCOM in recent weeks uh, than they have for a while. Uh, demand was apparently lower than expected. Um, and as a result, the uh, ESCOM says this week, and uh, Electricity Minister Ramakorpa says that uh, due to the lower demand, to the fewer breakdowns that have happened, they expected a certain number of breakdowns to happen at the coal power plants, but that hasn't happened. Um, I think we can speculate in our discussion on, as to why that might be. Um, but uh, as a result of, of things going better than expected, ESCOM is able to take more of the plants offline for maintenance um, uh, this winter than they had originally planned. So they had originally planned to take very little offline for plant maintenance, expecting lots of breakdowns, expecting high demand, and it hasn't been as severe as they thought. Um, John, this has now begun a conversation in the country that maybe load shedding is actually not as sort of intractable problem uh, and, and things might be turning around and looking up. Is that true? And secondly, um, what do you make of the reasons for why there have been fewer breakdowns and why the situation is better than it was at the beginning of the year? Mm. Well, I think the first comment is that I think we feel pathetically grateful at being an only stage one or stage three load shedding compared to what we had earlier in the year which is uh, you know, a reflection on, on the state of the country, the state that we got to. Um, so we're now quite, quite happy uh, sitting very comfortable with you know, stage one to three load shedding, which is amazing. Um, is it going to last? We're not sure. We think probably not. Um, we've been looking into this a little bit to understand why load shedding has been lower since it's, it's pretty much exactly like uh, since the beginning of June. So for one month now, it's been lower than before. And one of the reasons does seem to be that demand is lower. So there's just uh, not, not as much of a, a mismatch between supply and demand. It probably is also the case that more diesel has been burned or the diesel, the open cycle gas turbines have been run at a higher rate just to keep the lights on. It may also be the case that the wind plants have produced more power than they did in previous months. So there's a few different factors at play here um, that all seem to be conspiring in our favor, which we should be grateful for. But the one that really matters, of course, is whether the plant is becoming more reliable or not. Um, the energy availability factor, I think, has gone up. 
But whether that's sustainable or not is the big question. Um, and I have my doubts about that because uh, even if you can boost the reliability with short-term measures uh, to make it improve on a long-term basis does take time uh, and work. You know, so if you're putting into the, in the maintenance times, the overhauls, the refurbishments and so on, that doesn't happen overnight. And it would, it would seem unlikely that you get the benefit of those kinds of changes happening from beginning of June and then just remaining in place through the rest of the year and into the glorious future. So my expectation at the moment is that we're going to see load shedding creeping up again um, as, as plants starts breaking down again, unfortunately. Nick. Um, before I let you go on that one, John, do you think we'll see stage eight this year? Are you willing to make such a call? In the autumn, I thought we were going to. Um, and now I don't think we're going to. Because I think we, we, might just, we might just ride this wave of slightly better availability into the spring when demand for electricity goes down and sort of just skirt that. Um, you know, if we, if we get through winter without stage eight, we'll probably be okay to the, to the end of the year. There's also three units of Cosila coming back on stream in November, right. which contribute 2.4 megawatts um, of production. So that's like two stages of load shedding. So if we get, you know, all the way through to November, uh, we'll, we'll probably we'll manage to survive without stage eight load shedding. I think that's 2.4 gigawatts uh, of load shedding. Um, Terence, final thoughts on this before you before we move on? No, I, I just I just uh, um, endorse what what uh, what John says, and I think the real problem is the the wild cards of of um, unanticipated breakdowns. You know. Couple of couple of units going offline can you know can upset the whole thing. Um, maybe not stage eight, but I do think our old you know our old friend stage six might be back at some point. <laughs> uh, so my I, I took a bet with some of my uh, uh, housemates at the beginning of this year on this topic, um, and my non-insider information layman eyeballing it guess was that. Um, it's going to happen in August, and it's going to be the last cold snap of the year when power demand suddenly unexpectedly surges just as they've begun the spring cycle of maintenance. <laughs> anyway, that's my guess. I have no idea. Uh, okay. So let's uh, move on to our next one. And this is a, a topic you know we've, we've talked about quite a bit, but it's back, and that is that um, the unions are beginning to freak out in some of the mines that there is going to be major layoffs ahead. So a spokesperson for um, the National Union of Mine Workers in Mpumalanga is, I think, the acting regional secretary. Um, I wonder what happened to the regional secretary. Anyway, uh, that the union has received warnings from three different companies that if the rail system does not improve soon, they are going to have to begin significant layoffs among workers. Now, he said he wasn't going to say which companies these were because he didn't want to panic workers. Uh, he went on to say that the reason that this was a really big problem now and hadn't been in the past, he said, quote, in the past, even if they were transporting less, the price of coal was good, but now it has dropped, and so they cannot transport enough. Um, there's also some experts and the, the mining organizations which confirm this, that uh, due to the huge drop in in uh, in rail traffic, uh, there just aren't enough. There isn't enough capacity on the roads, even if you use trucks to try and get the coal out of the country. Um, there are so many problems on particularly, I think, that N3 highway, roads, accidents, strikes, breakdowns, that kind of stuff that just prevent them from being able to move out all the coal with, with trucks. And that means they're going to just have coal sitting around. And if it can't be sold, then it's costing them money. 
and they're going to have to lay off people. That's the idea here. Um, the chief commercial officer at Transnet Freight Rail said the country's rail capacity has been constrained by underinvestment, rising incidents of theft and vandalism, um, and uh, damage to the rail network by so-called business forums as well as cable theft. John, what's your take on this? Well, um, the facts are as you set them out. So last year, coal prices were very high. Um, and I think we could afford to uh, not be as efficient in our exports, even though it still cost us money. But as a country, having a happy-go-lucky attitude, you know, sort of commodity windfalls and high prices bailing us out <laughs> is not going to work forever. And, you know, this year it's not working in the coal industry and it's not going to work in other industries as well because you've ultimately got to get your act together and, and make, make stuff work properly. Um, so the... the uh, Sort of commodities exporters are, are now under stress uh, with the risk to employment. But in that article which you shared with us, Nick, I thought the, the most interesting little factoid was in the very last paragraph, and which may be also slightly different from the way that we've spoken about the story before. Because what it says there is that since the deployment of coal customer-funded security interventions, there has been a 34% reduction in security-related incidents per week on the coal line. So we saw a few weeks back now um, private business, you know, another initiative to help the government fix problems in uh, transport, electricity and crime, saying that they're going to get involved. Uh, some of those companies seem to be a lot more gung-ho than they were before uh, in the sense of saying, you know, this time we're going to take the lead. We're going to make sure it, it, it works and we're not going to take our lead from the government because that doesn't work. We know that already. And this is like a first little indi indication, I think, of that kind of approach actually working where these uh, iron and coal exporters say, you know, we're building up huge piles of iron ore and coal, which we can't ship. Uh, it's costing us money. We've got to do something about this. We're actually going to, uh, you know, just put drones down, 35 drones. I see 86 security task teams. Uh, we're going to put the resources in to make sure that, that, that the, 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 the goods continue flowing. And that's actually quite a positive development. And I hope they continue doing that. Um, and, you know, more and more, I think that's going to be where things are heading. Uh, if you want something to get done, you've got to do it yourself as an individual South African or as a company. Um, got to do things yourself and sometimes with or without the government. Nick. Right. And I, I think it also speaks to how much of this is not just sort of underinvestment or incompetence or whatever. It's actually there's deliberate nonsense going on here. Um, here they talk about, of course, the role of the so-called business forums, which are often thinly disguised mafias that are uh, operating to just sort of tear things down. And, and, you know, as we know, a big part of the ESCOM story, to just go back to the last story, is also due to mafias operating to break uh, stuff in the, in, the, in the stations. And I wonder if they're less active now than they have been for some reason. Interesting to think about. Uh, Terence, what's your take on this story? Um, well, it's, go ahead. Yeah, look, I, it's a it's a concept that I uh, that I've come back to for years. The idea of the developmental state, the thing that uh, animates a lot of thinking in the, on on the part of the government. That uh, you know, following the example of Singapore, or South Korea, or latterly China, the state will take a central role in the economy and you know use it to discipline capital and drive forward uh, you know ourselves into the um, uh, into the sunlit uplands of a developmental utopia. Um, my response to that is, you know, if we can get the Singaporean civil service to do that, then I'm all for it. Um, 
the problem is that 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 the state itself has become has become not just a non-enabler, but often a um, often a deformer and a disenabler of these things. I mean, yeah, you um, uh, rail is, um, I think, quite unfairly because you know we don't we we don't use it, or at least middle class South Africans don't use it for commu uh, for commuter purposes. We tend to you know see it as a relic of a bygone era. But you know, for moving large volumes of um, large volumes of goods you can't you can't beat it it's just the it's 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 the most um uh, the most economical um economical way to do things and as one of our um as one of our commentators said you know the 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 damage being done by being done by trucks i'd say not only not only damage but also there's a certain road hazard that goes with it the last time i drove that route i don't i'm not a fan of driving after dark but uh you know on the um uh the escarpment that goes between pumalanga and, and kzn um these trucks driving like bats out of hell um you know it was really very intimidating now i i wish a lot of that sort of thing could be um uh, could be on rail leaving you know uh good burgers in their cars to uh, uh, uh to proceed at whatever whatever pace they're comfortable with yeah i, I actually you know you bring up the safety of of, of trucks uh, there was I, I know yesterday i think a really horrible car accident at the eastern cape truck flipped over and squashed and its trailer squashed a taxi and everyone in the taxi was killed um it's like yeah. 15 people including kids and stuff really horrible stuff and i do you know we we kind of have this sort of like routine in the media of every year whinging about the uh the horrible death tolls on the roads and there are many reasons for that but one of them i'm sure is the fact that we have to over rely on our roads with lots of trucks uh john mm. any final thoughts on this before we before we move on well, maybe just uh, also picking up on one of the comments in the in the chat um, that this is one of the areas where you need government to do its job. Uh, private sector can't really do it. Sort of. Um, I know what you mean by that. You know, it's one of those really capital intensive industries uh, where, where it's almost like a natural monopoly. Um, but the thing is, I think the private sector does have a big role to play. Like if you, for example, concession stretches of the of the of the tracks or railways off to private players. Um, you'd probably get a much better quality than what we've got at the moment. And I think that's where the, the kind of um, solution logic lies, that you say, good, you know, Kumba uh, will, we're going to give you responsibility for the following corridor um, or, the, or the coal mining industry, for that matter, mm -hmm. all the way through to Richards Bay. That's your job. Uh, make sure it works. Uh, make sure there's no crime on that line. Make sure the infrastructure doesn't get stolen. It's well-maintained. And then at least that works. You know? So you can get mm -hmm. the, the private sector involved in that sense. Give them the authority to run it properly have it run properly, um, and then Bob's your uncle. Easy. Nick? Yeah, well, you know, just, 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 um, uh, just on that, you know, one of the kind of natural monopolies, uh, like the very function of a state, is the maintenance of law and order. You know, I, um, I, I don't think that there is any substitute for a, you know, properly functioning police force, or I should actually say police forces, because I think one of the problems we have here is that um, our policing is overly centralized. Um, but you know, the the reality is that um, uh, is that we just don't we we just don't have such a service. So you know, if that is to be if that is filled in, however imperfectly by um, uh, uh, by uh, private security, then that's the that is the best of the available universes of solutions we have at the moment. Ultimately, however, you want your your um, the, the the services provided by the um, uh, by the state 
to be able to function, you know, either on their own or in collaboration with some sort of private sector partnership or perhaps even in competition uh, with them. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, any new government, uh, if it takes power in the next, after the next election, day one, the main priority should be to at least start off with repairing the police force. Because mm. if it is not prepared, you're going to have a lot of difficulty in fixing South Africa's other problems. Sure, yeah. Okay, so let's move overseas to a case that doesn't really affect us, except it does, because it uh, is important in the battle of ideas. And this is the U.S. Supreme Court made a ruling on affirmative action. And it's amusing how much of this debate sounds exactly the same as the debate we have in South Africa. So uh, there were two cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, one to do with Harvard University and one to do with the University of North Carolina. And the accusations made here were that um, uh, Asian Americans were being discriminated against because they are a very large percentage, way above their proportion of the population, getting into American universities. Um, Asian in the American context means people both Indian and, you know, sort of Far East Asian, Chinese, Japanese descent. Um, and that these groups are, uh, are being discriminated against in the admissions policy of these uh, universities. Um, in a, a lengthy ruling, uh, the majority of justices, I think it was uh, six of them, so all of the ones, the so-called conservative justices, uh, said that uh, it violated the American Constitution's Equal Protections Clause um, to have to consider race in university admissions. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts wrote in the judgment, um, a student must be treated based on his or her experiences as an individual, as an individual, not on the basis of race. Many universities have for too long done just the opposite. And in doing so, they have concluded wrongly that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges based at skills built or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. Our constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. So about 40% of US universities consider race in some fashion in their admissions policy. Uh, there was quite a lot of pushback uh, to this. There was a dissent written by the three judges who didn't vote. Um, uh, the, the way of the majority here who said that uh, discrimination still exists in America. Katanji Brown-Jackson, the newest member of the court, said that with let them eat cake obliviousness today, the court's majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat, by deeming race irrelevant in law, but deeming race irrelevant, irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. And Justice Sotomayor said, the court cements a superficial rule of colorblindness as a constitutional principle in an endemically segregated society where race has always mattered and continues to matter. John, um, what's your take on this, on the politics of it? Will it affect South Africa? What's your thoughts? Well, there's certainly echoes of, of the debates we have here in South Africa as well. Uh, and I think from the IOR's perspective, of course, this is something we're, we're going to welcome. I think it's wonderful that racial discrimination is being effectively outlawed in university ad admissions. What is an interesting observation for me is how these kinds of really difficult questions are debated in the United States, how that nation figures out how it wants to move forward in things. Uh, and I get the impression that it is debated at a high level. You know, so the, the progressive or left-wing judges, uh, justices put forward their views very eloquently. So do the more conservative judges. Uh, you get to some sort of a resolution and that you can be sure as a temporary it's only going to be a temporary equilibrium, you know. So things keep moving on, either the one way or the other. And what is going to be interesting for me is to see whether this judgment is going to be seen as, as having been um, 10 years ahead of its time in terms of where American society is, 
or 10 years behind its time. Um, and we'll only see that as, as, as things unfold. Um, but my suspicion is that maybe we're, we are seeing a slight shift in the acceptability of racial discrimination in employment or admissions, uh, and maybe a shift away from that acceptability, which would be good. Nick. So, um, the interesting little caveat they made here was that uh, the ruling doesn't apply to military academies. Uh, with Roberts in his ruling saying the potentially distinct interests that military academies may present um, mean that uh, you may still keep some race-based admission system in that context. Um, Terence, what's your thoughts on this ruling before we close out? And well, I don't, look, I, th I, I, I think, and I've said this many times on the show, and I think also in writing, that uh, the experience of one country is not is is not transferable to another. But I do think that there is a great impulse to um uh on the, on the part of many people to sort of fight these 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 battles vicariously um so you know that that i think makes it a um makes it an interesting um an interesting and irrelevant thing to talk about my own my own sense is that um the criticism that that was made about uh, uh, race always mattering i i think i think that there that there is value to that but i also think that it's important to 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 bear, to bear in mind that these things are not are not static um american society in the in the in the, in the 1700s is very different from what it was you know in the 1800s from the 1960s to now i understand like what um it's one in every 18 marriages in america i think are um are are, are cross-cultural plus there's also enormous diversity within if you're a uh, um, an, um, a black person in America of recent West Indian provenance, your socioeconomic profiles might be very different from whether you are, let's say, a native black African American, and that, that also is split between whether you came you come from the South, from the Northeast, or from 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 California. Plus your class position, which is also you know uh, someone living in a in a middle class suburb in Cincinnati is going to be very very different from someone living in a what the projects as they call them in um, uh, in Los Angeles same incidentally with with uh, with east asians uh, japanese americans are one of the uh, one of the most successful groups vietnamese americans uh, very very different um, and also apparently amongst asians big differences between men and between men and women um so look you know i i do think that there's that 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 there is that there is some scope for for saying well no actually you know we, you need to think about this in 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 more detail um I, funnily enough i would be opposed to saying that this isn't that this is entirely illegal you know if it's a, if you're talking about about private institutions um on the you know uh, but that all being said um I think John is correct that there is a, that there is a level of maturity here that that we, that we would um, uh, we would do well to emulate. Just on the question of the military, I remember uh, reading about this some time ago. Apparently, what happened? Uh, this may have changed since since the piece I read, but the American military uh, does does its promotions on the basis of well, it, it it factors in various things. One of which is the racial mix of people to be promoted. The top twenty percent. Uh, are, are shoo-ins, irrespective of whether that, that group is 100% of, what, of whatever group. The bottom 20% will not be promoted, irrespective of whether they you know, are all like that. It's with that 60% block, and on occasion there are some hurt feelings and questionable decisions. But it's interesting that if you, that looking at um, uh, America's experience in Somalia, in Desert Storm, I imagine probably somewhat different in the recent, in the, in the more recent conflicts, there wasn't a single case of racial violence 
or racial tension that was serious enough to report to the um, uh, uh, to the military police. Um, the U.S. military is kind of universally recognized as one institution that is probably as, as close as you get to strictly meritocratic. Um, and also, what they say, funny enough, the one one institution where black men routinely, you know, bully younger white men. Interesting. Okay, well, that is all the time we have for today. Uh, thank you very much for listening. We hope you found the show interesting. We'll be back tomorrow on the uh, Daily Friends show. Cheers, everyone. Have a good day.